agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland Area Attorney Jay Carson. Hey, Mike. Hey, Jay. You know, we were talking about, I said, should I add on Cleveland Area Attorney and Defender of Freedom, Jay Carson? What do you, what do you think about that? I do like I do like the defender of of, of freedom uh, moniker that that uh, you might have to go with. Uh, that. It feels like it's a title that should come with a cape or something like that. Or well, exactly, or, yeah, or, or but, tights. Uh, but maybe we, we don't want to go. Can keep far. working on it. Yeah, but, yeah, definitely. Uh, Okay. It's an improvement about over what you usually call me. There, there you go. <laughs> so, all right, well, we will work on that. And before we do uh, figure that out, we want to thank our newest supporters on Patreon, Austin, Robert, Ryan, Emmanuel, and Rachel. And Austin wrote in to say, you know, I figured it's finally time for me to pitch in. You all have been a staple of my weekend routine for well over two years now, and I appreciate the work. We certainly appreciate the support from you, Austin, and from everyone else. Thank you very much. Of course, as a Patreon supporter, you don't just get that second full-length episode every week. You get ad-free versions of all our shows as well as other stuff at different levels of support. And to check it all out, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you would like to hear that weekly bonus show but you can't afford to support the show financially right now, Totally not a problem. Just send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will get you all set up with that. And if a monthly pledge, that's just too much of a commitment. I'd like to support us on a one-time or recurring basis, but you're not a fan of Patreon for whatever reason, there's our PayPal option. You can find that at politicsguys.com slash support. And we are also at Venmo at politicsguys. All right. So this week we will be opening to with the uh, you know, the police shootings of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, Adam Toledo in Chicago, and the police incident with Army 2nd Lieutenant Karan Nazario in Windsor, Virginia. Now, Jay and I have been talking about policing in America just a number of times over the years. And so we thought that for this conversation, we invite in somebody who would maybe add a, a valuable perspective to this latest discussion. It's my somebody my, who actually knows some stuff. There right? you go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, we refer, refer to them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, we're, we're happy to welcome to the show today my good friend, Mark Marsolet. And Mark has had a career in the Houston police before earning a Ph.D. in criminal justice and becoming a professor. And I think his combination of you know, real world and academic experience is something that you know, we could certainly benefit more from. And so I was really pleased when he agreed to join us on uh, the show today for this segment. Welcome, Mark. Oh, thank you very much, Michael. Uh, good to be on the show with both you and Jay. Uh, never been on before and looking forward to it. But thank you for the invite. So I thought we would start with the Dante Wright shooting in Brooklyn Center. And, you know, like a lot of people, I've seen the video footage that was released. And one thing that I really struggled with, as a lot of people are, I think, is how it's possible for a veteran police officer to mistake a Glock for a taser. I mean, not only are they very different sizes and weights, but they're holstered on different sides. And so it's kind of a nuts and bolts thing. But I was hoping, you know, we could get your perspective on this first off, Mark. Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate I appreciate the question. Um. Uh, you can stop me at any time, uh, you know, if, if I sound like I'm, I'm rambling, but um, 
One of the things I, I ask, I, I teach a use of force class in, at uh, my, my college. Uh, in fact, I teach it every other semester. Uh, I also teach policing in America. But one of the things I have the students do is look at, at training. And if you look at training of police officers, it's, you know, generally, you know, within a certain, you know, half a year time, little FTO training, stuff like that. Anytime a new weapon is introduced, well, the taser has been out there for a couple of decades, but uh, the original taser didn't look anything like a, a pistol. It didn't have a pistol grip or anything, but it actually looked like a, a blocky flashlight. Um, having said that, whenever police officers are giving alternative weapons, uh, they don't train as many hours with those weapons as they do with their sidearm. And so um, the human body has a tendency to go back to what they originally learned. Uh, mixing up the two, uh, you know, people were talking about that. Um, when we teach a new weapon, such as a taser, we don't have all the scenarios that somebody's going to be involved with. And I think the the, the physiological aspect of being in a stressful situation, uh, you know, the officer is expecting, you know, that person to stop, that, that person to cooperate. And then all of a sudden it, it turns into somebody's going to leave, somebody's going to be resisting. and then. What does the body do? It automatically goes and, you know, goes, if it feels like it needs a weapon, you know, the, the police officer feels like they need a weapon. They're going to reach for that. What have they, what have they reached for more times than anything on their uniform? They've reached for their pistol. And so that's, that's probably the predominant training that they have. I'll stop here, you know, and, and uh, let you ask any other question, but, um, uh, you know, I'll just stop. I guess the fact that the pistol, and I think it was the Brooklyn Center regulations, it's probably pretty common that the pistol is is on the dominant side, whereas the taser is on the other side, probably even more. I would imagine a person is more inclined to just reach with their dominant hand, in, especially in a stressful situation then. Yeah, that and that is correct. And, uh, uh, you know, when training alternative weapons, less than lethal weapons, if you look at the number of hours, that is spent uh, on that, it's going to be less than that sidearm. And in fact, most officers don't get a significant amount of sidearm time. I mean, if you look at, at academy training, 40, maybe, uh, you know, 40 to 60 hours of, of sidearm training. And you can't during the time, you're learning how to basically use the weapon, you know, whether it's the, uh, you know, less than lethal or the sidearm. But that's, the mechanics of shooting is one of the things that you take a lot of time up with. You don't take a lot of time up with scenarios, putting somebody into multiple scenarios, multiple variables uh, in, in you know, trying to uh, you know, make a determination when you use that or what you have in your hand. So, so, so Mark, I'm, I'm curious, and, and this is if you know, but this um, is not the first incident of this type uh, where where someone's been uh, shot, uh, killed uh, because an officer thought he was he or she was firing a, a taser, but was actually uh, firing the sidearm. Um, I mean, do you have any sense or any numbers of of how frequently these kind of of, of mistakes, uh, accidents, what, what whatever you want to call them, um, happen? Uh, right now, that the numbers I got this week was uh, less than uh, I want to say less than two dozen. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the news uh, sources had said that there's only three that were convicted 
of, uh, you know, during the, in the course of thought they were using the taser and they actually used their firearm. Yeah. So there's not been uh, any high level of accidents like this and then, you know, leading to criminal charges. So it's less, less than two dozen. Do you think so? So do you think that this is at least and we've seen other incidents where police responded in very high stress situations in ways where certainly almost anyone would at least question whether they were using an appropriate amount of force. And in some cases, just seeming to, at least to the kit, to the you know, uh, casual observer, I guess you could say that clearly they were. Is this to what extent would you say this is a training issue? And if so, what sort of implications does that have for the amount of time and resources that we that we communities put into police training? Well, you know, we, we touch upon training and I, and I, I, I don't want to get on my soapbox about train, train, training. Training. That's why we're having you on, Mark. Yeah. Training, training, training does duplicate everything. You know, you know, we have a, you know, the, the, the military, you know, until we send somebody into combat, you need, you can, you can go through all as many scenarios in, in one of the forts in, in the United States and then send somebody to Iraq and Afghanistan and, and then they get under combat. And, and uh, that's, you know, that's the experience that's going to, that's going to take place. What, what I think that a lot of people are missing um, on a lot of these shootings and, uh, you know, I have, I have my opinions about, and, or, you know, these handlings of these situations, whether it's Ferguson, whether it's, you know, uh, the current trial that, that's going on with the ex-officer Chauvin. Um, the variables that play into this, if if we back everything up, uh, and if you go to a roll call at, at the start of the, the shift, I don't recall any officer sitting there saying, you know, I hope I get into a chase tonight. I hope I, you know, get to use my taser. I hope I get to use my gun. Um so you have a situation where you have somebody that's a training officer, you know, and, you know, whether it's a traffic violation or not, and, and we can get into, you know, whether police should be stopping traffic violators. But um, so you have a, you know, you really have a preconceived notion of how this traffic stop's going to go. And people say you shouldn't, shouldn't assume anything. There's no scene of routine traffic stop. But, you know, we're checking boxes uh, as a police officer. You know, stopping somebody, so you expect I'm going to get driver's license, uh, proof of insurance. I'm going to explain to him why I'm stopping him. And then when things start to get awry or things don't, you know, work out in the scenario that you might have in your mind, then, you know, how 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 is your body going to react? How are you going to react? How is your mind going to react? And we don't do enough of that. And and I don't think that's a, that's a training issue. I mean, this woman had 26 years on of experience. But how many traffic stops did she? How many high risk traffic stops did she have? Um, but the expectation was that this person would cooperate. And so, you know, is it a retraining issue? Uh, maybe it is. But I, you know, I, again, I think the build up to this uh, is a flowing, it's a fluid situation. And I think what people are looking at is videos where it's okay. Here's a slice. Here's a slice. Here's a slice. And I, and I think that that's problematic for a lot. Out of police to get involved in these situations. You know, I, I can I can understand. I mean, I like I said, I like everyone. I've watched the videos that that came out for all of these incidents. And you know, one thing when I when I looked at, for instance, the 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 right or the uh, or the Toledo videos, it seemed like wow, things were happening awfully quickly. And honestly, it took I could hardly make sense of what was going on from the body cam video. But then I see something like the Karan Nazario incident where. 
It didn't seem like a particularly high stress situation. You have a, a officer, you know, walking up to this guy and, you know, telling him that he's fixing to ride the lightning and that he should be afraid to come out of the vehicle. And that to me does. It's harder for me to look at something like that and say, well, you know, this is just a high stress situation and an officer's reacting to me. This seems like a like a, a small town cop who's pumped up with his own self-importance and feeling like he's above the law and, and and acting as such. And I wanted to get your take on on that and maybe the differences between those situations. Well, OK, let's let, let me let me back up here a second. So um, it my understanding is, is uh, the officers initially uh, made uh, caught this uh uh, the lieutenant in inside the military lieutenant, uh, you know, a, a, quite a distance back. The expectation was that he would stop immediately. That's one of the expectations of police. Uh, the lieutenant, in fact, decided, well, I want to go to a well-lit area, uh, you know, make sure that everything's okay. So he drives down the road. So what happens physiologically, and, I, and I've been in this situation before, you go to pop somebody, you know, you hit the lights, you hit your siren, they don't pull over and say, okay, what do I got? Are they, are they getting rid of evidence? Is there something going on? Are they eating drugs? Are they doing this? So those things will run through your mind. You know, the fact that the, the plate was in the back, it's a new vehicle, uh, is that suspicious enough to stop? So let's, let's back up before we get to the officers getting out of the vehicle and approaching uh, and being unprofessional. But um, they are, in, in fact, you know, the physiological aspect and they're, they're wondering and stuff like that. And, and do they have to come out so strong? Did they have to come out like that? I would say, no, they did not. But I also want to take into account what preceded all that. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that, you know, you know, I don't know if it's a hiring issue, um, whether we, we, we like officers to be very physical. We like them to, you know, kind of take charge. That's why we hire them. You know, they have this command presence and all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, we don't do enough talking about, you know, talking oneself down like a hostage negotiation and say, oh, uh, maybe this is what I have. Let me see what I have before I react this way. Um, whether it's a small town, you know, policing, I, I've seen a lot of small town police. They, they're very well trained. They go to a lot of training. They don't have a lot of calls. I've seen a lot of small town uh, police officers, uh, you know, they 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 do an excellent job. Uh, they, uh, you know, they do spend the time, uh, you know, because a small town usually invested in what's going on in the community. So, you know, in this case, uh, pepper sprays to get somebody out of the vehicle. A lot of officers are being trained now, you know, let's not get into fights. Don't get injured. Use your pepper spray, use your taser and stuff like that. There has been a, a uh, examination of, you know, whether we're these police officers are depending way too much on these less than lethal things rather than, you know, let's let's use, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, maybe maybe calm down, start talking to people and stuff like that. They they escalate it right away. And I guess that's a that is a training issue. Mark, I, you know, and maybe this is an unfair question, but to kind of go into the, the bigger picture, obviously underlying so many of these. Uh, these incidents is race and and there's there is the the uh, i guess the automatic response uh, uh by some that um every one of these incidents is necessarily uh a racial incident and and occurs because of an underlying 
whether you want to call it structural racism or institutional racism, uh, unconscious racism, uh, so forth. And, and I want to just kind of get your perspective, both as a, as a former law enforcement officer, someone who works with a lot of cops, and, and as a professor now. Uh, what's, what's your sense of, of how much race plays into uh, these, these incidents? And I also understanding each one is, is different, has its own facts. Um, uh, or, or is it more, uh, these other, these other factors? I mean, humans under stress who, who can make mistakes, um, uh, or just, I mean, bad training, bad apples, what have you. Well, I, you know, I, you said bad apples and, and, and that, and we can talk about bad barrels and I've got a, a kind of a thing that I'm working on. I'm going to get back to that with, when you talk about apples, but, um, yeah, racism does play a part. Okay. Uh, you know, we've, we've known that for years and years and years. Um, I go back to, you know, at one time, one of the officers I work with, his grandfather used to take him to Ku Klux Klan's meeting. So, uh, he still got hired. Um, um, there we, you know, there's a officer, you know, uh, I, I worked a predominantly, uh, African American section in, in Houston, the third ward. Um, and I didn't grow up like that. I grew up in, you know, you know kind of rural townish uh, area, you know, 90, 90% uh, white. Um, but I did go in the military. So a lot of my uh, uh, fellow soldiers were, you know, great, you know, great mix of, of, of you know, Americans, you know. Uh, and so anyways, uh, coming into policing, we do see that race factor uh, is is significant. Um, They've hired more African-American officers. We've paired up more, you know, African-American officers, Hispanic officers, Latinx officers um, with, you know, the predominant white male, you know, that came out of the 1960s, 1970s. But, you know, racism is still a problem. Uh, and you can get somebody to go through uh, the old interview process and stuff like that and still, you know, how can you change, you know, there's a lot of times the way people grow up and what they've been exposed to as a family member. You know, you can get, keep that hidden during a, any sort of interview. Um, yeah. and I, would, I, would I would suppose that sort of thing would also be, I mean, resistant to any type of, of training, right? I mean, you could kind of probably put, if you've got someone like that who grew up going to clan meetings, you could put them through all the diversity training in the world. And, and you know, would that would that change, you know, their, their mindset? I, I don't know. I mean, I suppose that depends on the individual. Yeah, and that, but that, but that also, Jay, that also enters into the this thing about the physiological response. If you if you've been taught that, uh, you know, a certain, and I use a, I use purple people in my class. I said if you, if you've been taught that, you know, or, or learned that purple people are a threat to our way of life, purple people engage in crime, uh, people purple people do this, then in fact, all right, now if you're in a situation where you're an officer. And you've already been trained and stuff, but you you've perceived purple people as a threat all your life, or you've been told they're a threat all your life. Uh, even with training at the academy, diversity training, uh, exposure to officers that are purple, um, you know it, it. That's going to enter into you know this this kind of this physiological response and psychological response. And uh, um, I want to say that, you know, this was 2021, and, and we saw some changes from the 1960s, 1970s, community policing, 1980s, and I thought policing was significantly improving. 
I'm not sure that 9-11, you know, heading back to threats, threats, and threats, didn't do more damage to policing than, you know, uh, you know some of the other stuff that's going on. You know, you mentioned, Mark, community policing and, and fear of purple people and that sort of thing. And that kind of raised a question for me is looking at police compared to the communities that they that they work in. And, for instance, take Brooklyn Center. Brooklyn Center, according to the last census report, is around 29 percent black. But the police force is not even nine percent black and not one of the Brooklyn Center police, according to the interim chief, it said not one of them actually live in the city they're policing. So it seems to me that and maybe this isn't all that uncommon. You have these people coming in from the outside who don't live in the community and who don't look like in many cases the people who are they are they are interacting with. And it seems to me that that's that's kind of problematic. And I want to get your take on that. Yeah, yeah, it is problematic, but you know, you know, you look at the the uh, something like Cincinnati. Where does where does majority of the uh, Cincinnati police force live? Um, not within the city limits, as far as I know. Uh, we experienced the same thing in in Houston, uh, with you know probably maybe one quarter of the officers living within the city, the rest living in the outskirts. Um, and so, but I, you know, I want to be careful here. You know, uh, I've seen. You know, really, you know, officers that become invested in a community, they may have not come from that community, but become invested in that community at the local level, working with people not of the same ethnicity, not of the same race, uh, and do a very, very good job. Um, and so I think it's important that you have members of the community be part of the police department. But I also found out that, you know, a reason Houston hired so many outside officers they couldn't get people from Houston to join the police department. They couldn't get people from Texas to join the police department. My class was probably 50 to 60 percent outside of Texas. That's where they were recruited from. Uh, I think it's essential. It's, it's the ability to learn, though, to work within the community. I did not grow up in an African-American community. I grew up in a, you know, a town, a white town dominated by white. I went to Houston. I worked predominantly in a third ward area, the, the African-American area. And it was it was eye opening. It was a learning experience. But I also work with officers who were willing to learn and work with the people. And they weren't of that. You know, they weren't from within the city. Now, I want to get back up here. You talk about, uh, you know, Minnesota, but go back to Ferguson. The same thing was found in Ferguson. Is that you know the Ferguson was is is dominated by African Americans, but yet the time of the uh, uh, Michael Brown incident, the the force itself was you know predominantly white, and many of those officers were from outside, and that is perceived as an occupying. Um, that is where a lot of relationships go south. Is when the police are seen you know as occupiers uh, and. I, that has to be corrected, whether it's corrected by having people hired from within the community or making sure that people are, uh, uh, you know, spend a lot of time in the community and feel very comfortable, not sit there and say, well, I just get my paycheck here and I'm going out uh, and leaving. So uh, I think community policing was one of the best things that happened to uh, police work. I think in many respects, we've probably gotten away from that. And that's why I said go back to the 9-11 with the, you know, kind of the Homeland Security and anti-terrorism. And profiling, profiling, you know, during the community policing, when the community policing, they were saying, okay, we're going to, you know, this this profiling has to stop. Well, what happened after 9-11? 
what did the, the federal government say? What did local government say? We got to start profiling, you know, terrorists. So it sort of came back in. And there's also this militarization of policing really took off post 9-11. Yeah, it seems to me that that also, I mean, there's also this, right, the the, the thin blue line thing. I mean, there's the, the shot that a lot of people saw of the <laughs> day after the shooting in Brooklyn Center, the police raised the thin blue line flag and so forth. And, and I mean, there's that, but there's also this sense that at least I think a lot of people feel is that the police feel like it's an us versus them thing as opposed to sort of a protect and serve. And there's this sort of ad- adversarial feeling going in that maybe is actually even exacerbated by what some people would describe as the kind of paramilitary nature of police academies and police training and that it creates a culture of where you're going into it feeling like this is the enemy out here as opposed to the community that I'm supposed mm-hmm. to serve. I mean, that. what's your sense of that? That you know, I, I'm, this is you, you're going to get into my lectures here, and you know, we've only got so many, so many minutes. But here, one of the things that I talk about: nobody's born a police officer. Okay, um, you know, I, and I, I told the class one time: nobody's born a police officer because no, no woman wants to give birth to somebody with a gun and a badge. But, anyways, um, the the thing is, is, nobody's born a police. Officer. Where do the police officers come from? They, they they're American citizens, and they're expected to represent the government. And so I think we've lost, we lose sight of it. I don't say we lost sight of it because there's a lot of officers out there that don't engage in that us versus uh, them mentality. And that is part of the police culture because, you know, I worked night shift for many years. Who's out at night? You know, to us, you know, you know, bad guys and bad girls are out at night. And so, you know, that's, that's, you know, the police us versus them. But in actuality, you know, the, the police are part of the, you know, are, that's where they come from is, is, is they are part of the community and should never, ever, they're not an occupying army. Um, we have tendency, we have a tendency though, police, police unions and stuff like that. They really stress their safety, you know, uh, rather be tried by 12 than carried by six. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of culture that is, that is lessened over the years, but that doesn't mean that, you know, isn't tremendous pockets of that. Um, and so, you know, it's to not to, to forget that you are, after all, an American citizen that's given a you're in a profession and that you're working with American citizens. You're, you're helping American citizens. Uh, there's there's a lot of police departments that really are you're hitting on that and getting away from the us versus them mentality. There's also the, you know, the warrior mentality. We, we, we called ourselves the third ward warriors, you know, in night shift. But in actuality. You know, you know, we're really, you know, peacekeepers and, and uh, uh, you know, just trying to, you know, trying to maintain order, uh, not so much worry mentality. Once you get that worry mentality, then, you know, it's us versus them. So us versus them is there, but I don't I, I think it's lessened tremendously so over the last couple of decades. We're just going to take a quick break and we will be right back uh, with a continuation of this story. Some more questions for Mark. All right. So, Mark, you know, one other thing I wanted to to ask you is, and I think, Jay, this is something you and I, uh, while we usually disagree on unions, uh, I actually suggested that in the past it may be part of the problem here is, well, with police unions. And, 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 you know, I understand that the role of any union is to protect and to work for the benefit of its members. But it seems like that in at least many communities, 
police unions have kind of been able to negotiate these agreements that make it harder to discipline or dismiss problem officers, that make it harder to be transparent about disciplinary histories and, and that sort of thing. And, and also even, you know, sometimes give officers involved in incidents protections that no one else receives, in addition maybe to mandating hiring practices, saying that, for instance, uh, officers can live outside the city and that sort of thing. And, and I was wondering, you know, obviously you were, you were part of a police union, and so you know this from the inside, but do you feel like in some instances police unions are, in a way, part of the problem? Uh, yeah, with, without a doubt. Uh, I think there's very strong unions out there that, that uh, have, because they're very well politically connected, one only has to look at the, um, you know, Suffolk police in New York and, and some of the stuff that they're going through, but they're, they have a, they have PACs, uh, they're very politically connected, they support certain candidates, uh, candidates, uh, and so when they support a candidate, then of course, then they have proposals uh, that that are going to get okayed, whether it's a city council, whether it's a mayor, uh, or some uh, you know county official, elected official that they do support. Police unions uh, run the gamut. You know, throughout the South, the police unions aren't that very aren't as strong as you know, kind of the Northeast and the Northern unions. Uh, that could um, you know, let, let's say for example, tr- training. Uh, if if a police union is sponsoring some sort of defensive tactics training. Uh, chokehold training or something. I'm just, you know, speaking off the top of my head. Here. And but the police department's policy is that nobody will learn to do chokeholds. Well, if you have a strong union that says, well, we've got a specialist going to come in and teach us how to safely do chokeholds, then that union's probably going to, you know, bring a bunch of officers in and teach them the chokehold. When in fact, that may be, you know, a violation of the, of the policy of that police department or the city. And but they they're gonna they they wouldn't pay for the choco training but they they would you know they the officers would be trained in that so um, this is something that you know is of concern and and you know I I was a member of a union I saw the the need for the for the union especially for legal representation anytime you would um, you know have an officer accused of wrongdoing and he is he or she is in the right uh, they need that legal representation and in fact some some police chiefs. Uh, and, and police uh, commissions are not uh, very fair. Uh, and so uh, they will terminate officers or they'll keep officers. We had, an, we had a, a case I was just talking about in class the other day. Two officers, one was, uh, both were caught stealing. One was caught stealing overtime. The other one was caught, you know, stealing uh, some, some supplies or something. The officer that got caught stealing overtime was given 10 days off. The other officer was fired. Um, both were stealing. The officer that, the officer that got fired in his defense, what he used, he taught the union. That's what the union represented. They said, um, they're both thieves. Uh, this other one needs his job back. So the department ended with, you know, two police officers that have been found to be stealing, but they, they had to hire the other one back. Uh, and that was, that was through the, the union. Um, people cringe at that, but on the other hand, people say, well, that's fair. Um, I, you know, I, I was talking to somebody one time about the Boston police and supervision, and I, I was a supervisor, and I said, this is what we do as a supervisor, and I was told that in the Boston police, supervisors couldn't do that. And I said, well, they're not really supervisors then. Um, and that, that, that really kind of set me back. But I think the police unions, um, they're feeling the heat right now. 
Um, many of the police unions are feeling the heat because of some of the stuff that they've been involved with in defending some of these officers, these bad officers that have kept their jobs. So it be interesting to see how this plays out. So let me, I'm going to sort of take the, on uh, the other piece of this, and that is um, uh, intake and recruitment. Um, I served for several years on our, our city's uh, civil service commission. And we had a, a chief and a, a d- department that was really good uh, in terms of, of screening folks uh, as they came in. Um, and I'm wondering just what your thoughts are on on the role of, of groups like civil service commissions or other pre-screening, um, uh, the, you know, does doing doing a better job on the front end, will that make a difference uh, down the road? Yeah, I think, I, I you know, I'm, Really, Jay, that 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 is something that I I I'm putting to paper. Um, you know, there's been talk about defunding the police, and I'm my you know I don't think that's going to happen. We're, we're going to have police. So what do we we what do we need to do? Um, I years and years ago, I'm going to talk about canine. I ran a canine unit for the police department, but what we did was reverse engineer. We kept we we were getting in situations where we. You know, the dogs weren't performing. Training wasn't making up for it. And, and we came up, uh, a good friend of mine, we came up with reversing. What is it that we need to do this this job? And so we said we need to screen the canines better. And so uh, I think we t- it's time to reverse engineer. What is it that you want? Uh, and, you know, I'm, 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 I'm glad to hear you say that you did serve on, on something. That input is really important. Uh, a lot of police Departments don't want that input, but I think it's I think it's so important because I remember where do the police come from? They come from the community. So we want to reverse engineer and say, what is what does that ideal officer look like? Okay. And then we have to start recruiting. Now, having said that, um, you also pay for what you get. If you're paying forty thousand dollars a year, you're not gonna get, you know, the super officer, you know, he or she is is, you know going to go to some other place, some other department. But we we, we we keep talking about training. Okay, we've got to do diversity training. We've got to do this. Why aren't we loading the front end up with people that are already comfortable with diversity? Why aren't we loading the front end? So I think this, I think it's so, so important uh, to do that. And I, I think that's, that's going to be the key. I think some police departments, I'm going to say this, I think some police departments may have to just check their whole police department just like the military does with a unit and go, you know what? Uh, there, there's a lot of controversy right now with, you know, those, you know, the Navy SEALs a couple of years back, they disbanded some of those and say, we got to start again. Uh, that's very time consuming. It's very uh, costly. It's no guarantee, but I think in some cases that police departments may be looking to do that. That's where the unions come into play. And that's where civil service comes into play because how do you get rid of a bunch of, problem officers, you know, uh, it's not just a bad apple, but it may be, you know, a, a bad barrel of them. So. Yeah. And just to, so I can give listeners um, who, who aren't familiar with the, the process about what, what I was talking about in the, the civil service process, the way it works, at least up here is uh, those who uh, want to apply, take a, a generalized test uh, from the, the uh, group of, of people who get a certain score on the test. Um, the city creates what's called an eligible list. Um, uh, of folks who can be mm-hmm. hired off that list. And, and from there, uh, then there was additional screening um, that got to the point of once, you know, you were you were on the top 10, I think, in the eligibility list, you'd have additional interviews, uh, you'd have polygraph tests, you'd have background checks. 
And and what we ran into as the Civil Service Commission is is during some of these interviews, during these background checks, we'd find people uh, on the eligible list who had some some not not insignificant criminal histories um, or or mm-hmm. uh, drug issues or or psychological issues um, that that showed up uh, down the road. And then what happens is the the uh, police chief uh, uh, would come to the Civil Service Commission and say. Uh, we have concerns about these, you know, th- these folks based on on this and, you know, the Civil Service Commission then takes a look at it and decides whether to keep them or strike them from the eligible list. And that's kind of how the process works, at least at least in, in uh, my community. Um, but but yeah, I, I was I was uh, surprised at the number of people who who wanted to be police officers um, who who had some 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 pretty significant background issues. Uh, and again, we mm-hmm. wanted, you know, we were careful not to say, listen, you had, you know, whatever, some youthful indiscretion kind of, kind of thing. But, um, you know, there were, there were, <laughs> there were candidates who, uh, you know, had, had, uh, you know, significant misdemeanors, like within the last three months. I mean, it was that sort of, sort mm-hmm. of thing. And, and uh, yeah, that's, that it really impressed upon me. Yeah. The, the, the fact that if all communities did, did more, rigorous screening that that might uh weed out some of the, the people who are one either psychologically un, unfit right uh or or just have you know appear from their life choices to make perpetually you know bad judgments right so but you know going back well, the, to what, the thing, well, I, I was gonna say going back to what you said a little earlier and on, on jay's comment there you know, for a long time or at least since all this really kind of started to come up, my, my argument has been that defund the police, we should do exactly the opposite is provide the resources for better screening and better pay, but also along with that, have higher standards. And I've referenced, uh, you know, I've referenced, for instance, the latest agreement between the police union and the city of Cincinnati, where there were raises, but they also were accompanied with other more stringent requirements in terms of, I believe, performance and transparency with, with the union. And, and to me, it seems like that's that's a much that's a much more likely what's well, a way forward that's much more likely to provide something positive as opposed to just sort of cutting resources and they're just hoping that the problem will sort of magically solve itself. No, that, that I, I, I agree. I think, you know, the, the community gets the policing that they pay for. Um, and, but the, you know, this, this is, it's so important to send a message to, to those that get selected. You know, a lot of times police officers, police departments go out there, we want you, we want you, we want you. And then they forget to say, this is what we expect of you. And I think that what you're talking about there, exactly. This is what we're going to give you. This is what we want. And this is what we expect out of you. I think that needs to be very, very clear. There is not a lot of training in, you know, um, you know, we say, well, we're not going to tolerate this. We're not going to tolerate that. Uh, but if police departments sat there and hired, you know, a bunch of, you know, great candidates and turn around and one of those great candidates messed up and they messed up really bad rather than, uh, you know, do we, do we retrain them or do we terminate them? And then we make a statement there. So, um, it's, it's got to be very, very clear that the problem is across the United States, there's a number of police departments that need police officers all across the United States. Maine is no exception. They need police officers. They're not getting them. So some police departments make the decision to say, well, we'll take, you know, we'll go off of the list, you know, Jay's list of eligibility. We'll yeah. go down a little bit further and take those offices. And, you know, 
and that that's an excellent you know, point. Holding and, and out, again, I'm, I was in a I'm in a community where a lot of people want to work here and want to be police officers. So we, you know, fortunately had sort of our our pick of the litter, so to speak, uh, and some really great qualified people. Um, but yeah, I understand right. that. Yeah, there's a lot of communities that just don't have that, and if they're going to have, you know, yeah, they may not have that that luxury. You know. Before we move move on to our, our next story, I, I did have one final question for, for you, Mark. Uh, I've noticed, at least in some sectors, a, a lot of people saying, well, you know what, this really isn't an issue because is, if people didn't resist, there wouldn't be a problem. And so people who resist sort of get what's coming to them. And as long as you just obey and comply and submit to the police, there's never going to be an issue with that. And I wanted to get uh, your your take on that. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of chuckling to myself because now you're saying, well, we've got to train the citizens. Um, you know, we, we, OK, so what class do we give, uh, you know, young people in high school? OK, when the police stop you. But when you see the police do this, this, and that, you know, and that that it we we don't take into account a lot of times, you know, you know, citizens and their expectation of what the police are supposed to do. And um, uh, yes, they, I mean, I know that there's, there's attorneys out there that they they sponsor these, um, you know, ads that say, well, the police do this. You don't have to do this and you can do this. And um, we we try to we try to get that out to the, the community. Uh, but, you know, I want to take that, that the lieutenant in Virginia, he seemed to be doing everything right, you know, as a, as a uh, you know, black, Hispanic, uh, you know, his hands and all that sort of stuff. He put him out there and he was, he was, he was talking calmly. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of those issues, I think, that um, what do we do with, with citizens? You know, do we, do we train them? Do we give them education? And, um, you know... I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, I'm just, now you get me a loss for yeah, words. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's Mike, I mean, I'll just, I'll just shoot in. I mean, I, I remember back, uh, you know, again, a hundred years ago when I took driver's training, um, that was part of the, the, the instruction is if you're pulled over, here's what you do, please, you know, have, you know, get your, have your license and registration ready, put your hands up where they can be seen. Uh, you know, all these steps to to de-escalate uh, so that an officer approaching you has has no reason, you know, to uh, uh, to be on sort of high alert or to to, you know, have that physiological response uh, kick in. Um, so, I mean, I, I and and I, I think, you know, Mike, you framed it as these people who get uh, who, who don't comply, you know, get what's coming to them. And I, I don't think I don't think that's the way I, I'd frame it. But I. Um, you know, I, I think if we can communicate uh, and, and people understand that, listen, if you're not going to comply with with the police, you're putting yourself at risk and, and you're, you're you're putting that police officer in a situation um, where, you know, they're going to have to respond to to something. And, and right. Which, which in know, no way, which in no way suggests that the police have any right to excessive use of force if you don't comply. No, 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 no absolutely not. But but I'm I'm just I'm just saying that. Um, if, if you, uh, are in a situation where you are not complying, uh, with, with a, a police directive, your risk of, of 
getting shot, having action taken against you rises significantly. And and, and I just I just got to say on this issue, I just feel like, though, it's a very, you know, we're, we're three white guys here talking and our experiences throughout our lifetimes with with. Uh, authority with law enforcement are just very different than a lot of a lot of black and other minority folks. I mean, I've you know I, I've talked to some of the some of the black students in my classes, and they're you know certainly their experiences of a lifetime with law enforcement are very different, and ones that make it I would say not necessarily as easy as it would be for, for any of us to say, oh, well, you know, it's just a cop and what did I do? I guess I'll have to pay a fine or something where, where there are people who are really in fear. And, you know, earlier Mark talked about how police can react out of fear and stress. Well, of course, that also applies to people who are pulled over, who, you know, I think in some reason when, you know, a, a cop says to you, yeah, you should be afraid. Well, that's a that, that's a well, no, no. Problem. And that's that's a different. Yeah, that's a that's a different sort of story but um well yeah i i know i know we need to move on but i i just want to thank you mark for coming on because i really do feel that this was a perspective that really been missing from our previous conversations that unfortunately we've had all too many of given all the incidents but uh we really do appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and talk with us about this all right. Thank you very much, both of you. Uh, I want to leave you with this thought. Uh, I look at this as an opportunity uh, for better policing in the future. I'm, I'm not going to get down. I think that the history of policing has shown that we there's setbacks, but out of that comes improvement. So, um, again, the you know, the, my former brothers and sisters that are on the force, I mean, they need to be safe uh, and they need to exercise good judgment. But, you know, I, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a significant improvement with no, policing. Let's definitely hope so. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we will be back. Uh, Jay and I will be talking about the uh, announced withdrawal from Afghanistan. That'll be just in one minute. Okay, so we are back. And uh, second story we want to talk about today on the show is that President Biden this week announced that all U.S. troops will be withdrawn from Afghanistan by September 11th this year, which, of course, is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Uh, Biden said, I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan, two Republicans, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility on to a fifth. And he went on to say that the main argument for staying longer is what each of my three predecessors have grappled with. No one wants to say that we should be in Afghanistan forever, but they insist now is not the right moment to leave. And of course, you know, I should point out, Jay, that this presence in Afghanistan has lasted much, much longer than was ever initially envisioned. And the mission has changed as well from defeating Al-Qaeda to the much broader mission to build and I guess you could say build and support kind of a capable democratic central government uh, and security system in Afghanistan that could withstand the threat posed by the Taliban. But after, you know, nearly two decades and hundreds of billions of dollars spent on military and police in Afghanistan, what we've gotten is what's widely viewed to be a hopelessly corrupt, incompetent and incredibly weak force that uh, seems to be pretty unlikely to stand against the Taliban. And, you know, in response to this, uh, congressional Republicans, well, they, they seem to have been pretty negative in their reactions. Mitch McConnell said the administration decided to abandon U.S. efforts in Afghanistan, which have helped keep radical Islamic terrorism in check, and that apparently 
were to help our adversaries ring in the anniversary of 9-11 attacks by gift wrapping the country and handing it right back to them. So, Jay, you know, uh, one of our supporters, actually, Tyler Six, said this seemed to be an issue where the U.S. is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. And I wanted to you know, get your thoughts on that. Do you agree with well, actually, I could say both President Biden and President Trump before I'm on this, because it's just Biden's kind of a continuation of the Trump trajectory. Or right. do you think Trump wanted that, to get out? Trump, I mean, was going to get out earlier. Yeah. In fact, you know, so w- w- what do you think about this announcement? I mean, is it you think it'll prove to be a mistake as a lot of congressional Republicans suggest? Or where are you on this? Um, where am I? So uh, I think there are a lot of uh, there's there's uh, a split among uh, conservatives on this. There are a lot of uh, folks out there who are saying, yes, we've sunk far too much into this. Uh, this is not our fight. We have no interest there anymore. Um, and and then there are the more uh, the Mitch McConnell type. Uh, and, and I would probably put myself closer to the, the latter. Um, <clears throat> I was not crazy about the, the you know, with the withdrawal when uh, Trump announced it. Um, I'm trying to think back exactly when we 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 mentioned we talked about it on the show uh, mm-hmm. at some point, um, and and my sense was that at this point we have 2,500 troops there, um, so not a significant military presence to do anything, but more a tripwire presence. Um, and I, I I don't you know I can't tell you what the right number is, um, but I have concerns about the message. Uh, of a of a complete pullout. Um, I have even bigger concerns about the message uh, messaging of having a pullout on the anniversary of nine eleven. That that to me is what what I <clears throat> find completely baffling. Um, that all right, if we want to draw down or or uh, even pull troops out, um, why why do this? I mean, it's it's sort of. I mean, we've had troops in Japan for for how long? Uh, you know, basically since since World War Two. And if we were to say. Uh, or, or if we would were to have said back in, uh, let's say, 1965, uh, uh, 1962, we're going to pull our troops out uh, on December 7th. Um, what message would that have sent? Uh, so that 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 again, that part eludes me. The 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 9-11 anniversary, I think, is is terrible. Um, now, again, that's that's more optics than than it is substance. But but still, optics count. And something that you know, we always used to talk about in the Cold War uh, is the the ability of the folks we ask to be our allies. Uh, can they rely on us? <clears throat> and and I think that's uh, another sense of of that's part of power. That's part of the the soft power we we talk about a lot. That uh, that folks, if they if they support the United States and people who are risking their lives to do so. Um, and then, uh, we, we leave them, abandon them. Um, that's, that sends a, a, that diminishes our ability to project force around the globe. So I'm, I'm in, I'm, you know, if we need to draw down troops, uh, I think that's, that's a good idea. Um, if, uh, you know, active hostilities there are, have, have essentially, uh, ceased, right. Where it's not an active war. Um, uh, but but that said, I I I really have issues with the uh, goodbye. We're leaving. Uh, happy nine eleven. 
Well, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, and, and but I think I have a problem with the analogy you draw because in 1962, Japan was a was a uh, stable democratic regime without the sort of uh, endemic corruption problems. There never really was right. No, right, a right, government. Right. But well, I, think, I think it still would have sent a horrible message but, if, we, but, if, we, if we left on December 7th. Well, right? see, I, I, I see it. See, a lot of people on the left see it the other way. A lot of people, maybe even on the libertarian right, see it the other way, saying that, you know, this is the this is the 20th anniversary. And we accomplished our initial goal, which was set by, you know, President George W. Bush, who famously said we should not get involved in nation building. And boy, I right. think, you know, that that kind of makes sense, either do it big or do it not at all. And, uh, you know, I read Bush's initial statements and, you know, this, this might take a year or so, maybe even as much as a year or two. And but the mission changed. And we have a we have an ally who is who is I mean, the Afghan government is horrifically corrupt. And so we're trying to prop up this essential this house of cards. So it's very different than being loyal to a, a part, a real partner government. This is a, this is just. Oh, no, a, no. And, and, and yeah, let me, let me be clear. When I say allies, I'm not necessarily referring to the Afghan government, uh, but I am referring to a lot of the Afghan people. So then um, let me, let me ask who, you had, who had assisted us and, and then, you know, to other allies uh, uh, who we might seek to recruit uh, who, who would be actual allies. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly that the Afghan government, has uh, you know from day one has been been uh, uh, ridiculously corrupt inept. I mean, put in whatever adjective you want. Um, so then you're for nation building. You think this is a a great way to spend our time and money? Well, if the initial reason for going into Afghanistan was to remove the Taliban from, it, but it from wasn't. Power, remember, it was to remove Al Qaeda. Well, no, but the idea was that the Taliban were providing a safe haven for Al Qaeda. And that was the the plan was to remove those safe havens uh, for terrorism. Um, I, I think that's that's a problem. And I, I very much, you know, when we when we pulled out of Iraq, uh, the Islamic State rushed in to fill that that vacuum. Um, so I'm I'm that's what I'm con concerned about is is that uh, uh, the Taliban will will rush back in and and will be essentially running. Uh, Afghanistan and able to provide that safe haven for terrorists uh, again before too long. And so then you would you would prefer a situation where we just basically said we're going to keep we're going to keep thousands of troops in Afghanistan indefinitely. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not I'm not committed on the number, but I think having a presence there uh, is is important. Even though the fact that we have a presence there has been essentially one of the, at least one of the reasons why the, the Taliban has just suggested that, you know, we're not going to do any kind of negotiation or work in any kind of power sharing agreement. Until, I mean, I guess what I'm saying, Jay, is that it seems to but, me. But that also, I, but, but let's also look, look at it this way. We haven't had a major terrorist attack since 9-11. We there there aren't places. Uh, there were for a while, I think, dur during the uh, Islamic State, uh, uh, you know, caliphate. Uh, but terrorists don't have those those bases of operations uh, anymore. So, I mean, I, I think there's there's some value there that, that we we can't overlook. And so you think it's it's uh, 
enough of a, I mean, obviously we don't know, we don't have any access to the intelligence or, you know, what, what's going on with international terrorism, but you feel that the amount of, of time and resources and, you know, potential lives that we are willing to put up to this is based on our admittedly very, very rudimentary knowledge without any of the, you know, security information that you think that's, uh, you feel more confident in agreeing with Mitch McConnell as opposed to Joe Biden saying that, yeah, this is fine. It's an open-ended commitment and we're just going to stay here and assume that the Taliban will never negotiate with the Afghan government, but we're yet, we're not going to do more. So we're not going to try to actually eliminate the threat, but we're just going to keep on pouring money into this corrupt system, which doesn't seem to be getting any better a generation after we started. I mean, should we just kind of keep – I guess what I'm saying is that should, you're just saying maintain the status quo and just assume that – Do you think that Do you think the Taliban will negotiate with the Afghan government once we leave? Oh, no. I think it's – I think no, not at all. No. <laughs> but but I guess I'm saying so, that uh, – so, I mean, I, that's – I guess what I'm saying know, is that – look, like, we either – if, <laughs> if, if, if somebody wants to make the – make the argument that this is not our war, that uh, these, this is, you know, the other side of the world and, and um, it doesn't affect us. And why do we send people there? Well, yeah, that, and, and we don't want to engage in nation building. That was something that, that uh, George Bush, uh, George W. Bush ran on and he made a, a big, uh, a big piece of it. And then nine 11 happened. And uh, to me, I think that, that told a lot of people that we do have to care about what goes on uh, in some place in the other end of the world that that we otherwise would have no interest in, um, because look, it it hit home, um, and and that is, you know, that's that's part of just the way the the world is. I yeah, um, but I, I so, get that argument, Jay. But what I'm saying is that it seems to me that that what we're doing right now is ineffective. Uh, the Taliban, you know, is a, is a clear force in Afghanistan. Right. That I mean, if we're I mean, it just seems to me that this is a this is just an endless black hole that we're dumping money and resources in. And you either at some point you either, you know, go big or you go home. Well, we tried going big, right? The surge under President Obama. And, you know, that was something that Vice President at the time Biden was not a fan of. But at some point, don't you have to say we either need to change our tactics or we need to just pull out altogether as opposed to just saying, well, we'll just keep on doing this thing that doesn't seem to be working and we'll just plan on doing it basically forever with no clear goals in mind, just saying, I don't know, I guess we'll fight. This is fighting terrorism somehow. Well, we had a policy like that for, you know, 70 some years uh, against communism. It was called containment. And and if if you maybe that's that's what we're talking about. No one has, has articulated in that way. Um, and and maybe nation building is is not uh something that we can or should engage in but containment's something different um what do you mean by and, containment i guess because it seems to me that's a concept from you know the days of nation states and you know this idea of where we could clearly see the enemy but terrorism seems to me to be a very different sort of thing because it can operate out of any kind of, you know, failed state or partially failed state like Afghanistan. And so basically, you know, it's one thing to fight communism and the expansion of the Soviets into, you know, Western Europe or something like that. But it's another thing to fight this amorphous concept known of as terrorism. Yeah, well, I, it's it's much more difficult. Um, 
but I think the principle is the same, is that you deny the terrorists uh, any actual territory uh, or any form of, of government aid uh, or shelter. Um, and, and that's why we went in there in the first place, was because the Taliban allowed al-Qaeda uh, to use uh, it, its country, uh, Afghanistan, as uh, I shouldn't say its country, use Afghanistan um, as its base of operations and to operate with with impunity there. Um, and, and it was sort of sheltered, you know, by, by a, you know, nation state. Um, and, and, you know, similarly, um, uh, again, the Islamic, um, um, or when we, the, um, uh, the, you know, the caliphate, uh, that, uh, too, the idea was let's, they wanted the whole territory, right? That was, that was a big part of their ideology. Um, so, uh, to me, I you know, look, I get it. It's 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 different than uh, the Russians pouring through the fold of gap, right? Yeah. But um, to to another extent, it's it's the idea of of we're not going to just let uh, areas be uncontested and say, listen, okay, uh, feel free to uh, you know erect your your terrorism you know state state sponsor of terrorism uh, state here. Um, and and, and I, I do look, I mean, you can you can say it's been unsuccessful, um, but I, I'll, I'll point back again that there hasn't been uh, a major terrorist incident since 9-11. Um, and, and we have, uh, you know, sent Al-Qaeda sort of to, to the wind, right? They're still out there uh, in, in, in various pockets here and there, but they, they don't have um, – the same sort of command structure and, and the, 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 we don't have the kind of place where an Osama bin Laden uh, can hide out. So, yeah, no, I, I, like I said, I'm, you know, I have been, if, if one would look back to my comments of this over time, one, one would see that I'm conflicted over this because actually I tend to agree with Tyler six. It just seems like we have no good options in this instance. And uh, I, I, you know, I, but I do feel like if if we take seriously your arguments, and I think we should, then it just seems to me like there there should be a better option than cutting out, cutting you know, cutting out and going home entirely, or just doing the same old thing that we've been doing and pouring money into this corrupt. Because of course, you know, part of the part of the issues we had we have well in the modern Middle East, one would argue, have come you know back to are the things we did in the name of containment and supporting corrupt regimes and you know the people losing the people and 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 so right. I, I mean I do think it is a, a just an awful an awful decision either way and I think that reasonable people can come to very different very different conclusions on this incredibly wrenching decision and, and look to to be clear we're talking about 2500 troops um and again, my my issue is is less with the number, um, and, and more just with the the symbolism. The uh, I mean, the, there was the, the meeting where where Blinken um, was telling the the Afghan president, "Oh, hey, we're still with you. We're still with you. Uh, don't worry, you can count on us. Um, we're out of here." Uh, that you know, uh, to me, um, is is the is the uh, issue. If you're just saying we're we're gone, there's no troops. Um, uh, that, that sends, that sends a, a, a message to, not just to, to the Taliban, uh, but also to, um, 
other uh, other international rivals. I mean, what, what message does that send to the Russians or the Chinese? But the other message is when people, you know, are extorted by these military units who decide to set up shop for themselves and it's done with, you know, U.S., in part U.S. equipment and, and indirect assistance, then you have another message that's sent is that the United States is happy to support corrupt regimes. And that's that's problematic, too. I think you'd agree. Um, you know, I, yes, it is, but but less so, right? Because I, I think what we're talking about um, is is power, power politics. Yeah, right. And it, it's it's look, um, you can say that the you know it's, it's kind of like what Lyndon Johnson uh, said about the you know South Vietnamese. I mean, he's, you know, uh, son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. Um, so that that's not an ideal. That's not yeah. That's not an ideal situation, um, but. I think if you have if you have two bad choices, uh, one being um, uh, abandon and and say, hey, look, we're not going to uh, 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 play in this field. We're going to surrender the field to the other side because our our uh, our proxy uh, is corrupt. Um, I, you, know, I, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, no, I, think, I, I, I do. Think the, but I think some the, people for, might say, for example, say, the Russians, the Russians or the Chinese. Let's put this with the Russians or, Ch- or the Chinese are not worrying about whether their uh, uh, proxies, again, shall we we say, allies, uh, are corrupt or not. But we're, we're the United States, and I think that's an important difference. Is there are certain values we stand for, certain sure. things we believe in that the Russians and the Chinese don't, and so we do hold our. We should hold ourselves and our allies to a higher standard. And it seems to me that, and this is way overly simplistic, I will be the first to admit this, but that we should be willing and able to use our support or our pledge of support as leverage to get our partners to move in the direction we would we would like them to toward a more open, right. free Right, well, exactly. But the pledge of support is is worth nothing you don't understand. Yeah. I mean, no, in, I know what you're in, saying. In, yeah. in the future, yeah. in the future, if we if, if then we don't then go and tell other uh, other governments, hey, look, if you reform, uh, don't worry, we got your back. We're going to stick with you for the long haul, and they're going to say, well, like you did for the Afghans, um, like you did for no, the and South I, Vietnamese. And, and, and I understand. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's no, that's yeah. that's you know the. And that's where what I'm saying is is it impacts the soft power that we're able to project. But then again, you can say you know you you have to you have to work with what you have, and so you could also say, well, like you did with the Israelis, yeah, exactly, because we've we've been a, a you know we've been a staunch supporter of of that government for generations, or like you did for the South Koreans, or like you did for the Japanese, absolutely so. But these were all cases where there was enough of a structure to build on that we could actually build. And in these cases, it's a lot more difficult because Afghanistan is called graveyard of empires, right? Because yeah. it's, there's not really a government there. It's this sort of artificial creation that has been tried to be, you know, a lot of people have tried to prop up, but there's really not much there there. Yeah, no. And, and that's, those are uh, South Korea, Japan, and Israel are, are three really great examples, I think. Yeah. Um, but, and, and yeah, you did have, have, real democratic uh, uh, governments there. And again, not, none of them, I would say, are free from corruption because because no government is, but it's it's not um, uh, Afghanistan. Um, yeah. You know, before... And, and I would also, you know, my, my last piece would, would be just on the, again, this is sort of the, I'm, I'm being kind of, you know, Kissinger-esque <laughs> kind of view here. I mean, look, um, 
we've had some pretty terrible allies. Uh, in in World War II, we were allies with a guy named Joe Stalin, um, who may well have been uh, one of the you know two or three worst people in all of human history. Um, but but we did it out of necessity uh, because the alternative was worse. And and you know I think dealing with uh, corruption uh, in in some place like, like Afghanistan, yes, they're they're certainly bad news. Uh, they're they're not Stalin. Um, you know, you can you can kind of do that moral calculus and say, listen, it's this is not the ideal situation. This is not who I'd like to be dealing with. Uh, but this is who I am dealing with, and this is these are my choices. Yeah, I, I can deal with I can deal with a corrupt. Uh, you know, this this guy who's corrupt, or I can deal with. Um, uh, I can deal with the Taliban. Yeah, well, uh, but but again, I, I would say it doesn't necessarily have to be a binary thing. As you can say, I can deal with this corrupt regime, but at the same time, not just simply accepting their corruption, but working and pressuring them to make reforms. Right? I mean, you would you would agree yeah. with that? I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and maybe uh, to but, me, but you need to have, but you need to be kind of clear eyed in that. That sure, uh, they they might not make those reforms. Yeah, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep on pushing for that. And I think there's sure. always going to be a tension there, certainly, because again, in terms of Afghanistan, it's just there's not that there's not that structure to build from in the first place. With that, there there was in South Korea and there was in Japan and Israel and so forth, which makes yeah. it so much harder. So I think Jay, in the end, both you and I agree with with Tyler Six that there really just aren't any. It's like the the least bad choice you can make. Right. And you we're can, just you and I are just choosing different bad options. Bad. Yeah, exactly. We're, just, we're 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 making different choices as to which one's the least bad. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we have run a little bit long today, but we still there's so much more we want to get to. And we will get to that on the bonus show. We want to talk about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine pause and what that means. Uh, the latest round of Russia sanctions, uh, maybe even uh, expanding the Supreme Court. There was legislation introduced this last week in in Congress about that. I think I know, Jay, how you feel about that. But we will get to all of that on the midweek bonus show. And if you are a supporter, that will be in your feed on Wednesday morning. And if you're not a supporter, you can become one by just going to patreon.com slash politics guys. Or if you would like that midweek show, you're just not in a position to be able to support the show right now. Totally get it. Just send me an email, Mike at politics and I will get you all set up to get that midweek show. One thing that doesn't cost anything and really does help us out is if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share your favorite episodes on social media. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook, on Twitter, and Twitter, and you will find those links in our show notes. A special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.